humans, how's it going? Susan Ruth here. Thanks for listening to another episode of Hey Human Podcast. This is episode 250, and I had a conversation with Matt Hundley about homesteading. It's really fascinating. I think whether or not you are a person that just has a casual garden, or if you are looking to one day develop your land into being a self-sufficient Uh, feeding, watering, sheltering place, then it's definitely an episode for you. And even if that isn't on your long-term goal or short-term goal, there's so much good information in this episode. Um, I think uh, you'll enjoy it. And I want to say congratulations to Matt, who proposed to his girlfriend, Gabrielle, and they are now engaged. So since this episode was recorded and to air date, uh, they're getting married. So well done, Matt. Good on you. And I hope you have a wonderful and fruitful life together. I want to give a shout out and thanks to my bestie, Ellen. She gifted me, it's her birthday week, and somehow she ends up giving me a present, which is very much an Ellen thing to do. She gifted me with Apple TV, and I'm so excited because there were a million shows that I've been hearing about forever that I didn't get to see, and so I binge-watched Touch Lasso. Oh my gosh, it's so good. It's like... I keep saying it's like a hug from the inside out. It's uh, dopamine on 10. I loved it. It made me so happy. Oh my gosh. If you haven't seen Ted Lasso and you have Apple TV or you have a friend that will get it for you, (laughs) I highly recommend it. I also started watching the show, uh, The Morning Show. Whoa, it's really good as well. So now I have new distractions. Dang it. But thanks, Ellen. I appreciate it. And yes, happy almost birthday. It's coming soon. So exciting. All right. Other news. Social media. Hey Human Podcast can be found on Instagram and Facebook. And my personal social media, Susan Ruthism, is Facebook and Twitter and Instagram. You can email me, Susan, at heyhumanpodcast.com. I love to get your letters, so please send letters. Any of the letters piled up together to make words, and I will read them. Links page is on heyhumanpodcast.com. Every episode has a links page where I take information from the episode, do the research for you, and compile it into one easy space. So you can just go there and learn more about the person I've talked to and the things we've talked about. I really enjoy doing the links page for you. So definitely check that out. Also on heyhumanpodcast.com, you'll find the store where you can get Hey Human merch and help support the show. So please do that if you are so inclined. Rate and review Hey Human on iTunes or wherever you listen to your podcasts. And uh, also, if you are into music, go to iTunes and check out Susan Ruth. That's me. I have albums. And you can download, if you haven't already, music that I have performed and written and things. So, Also, speaking of Susan Ruth, me, myself, and I... If you go to SusanRuth.com, you can find out more about me and sign up for the mailing list. And you'll get a mailer every quarter. I try. Really, I try to get it out every quarter. I'm not perfect. I'll be the first to admit it. But I'm doing my best. Okay, that's about that. Thanks for listening. And uh, take care of each other. Be kind. uh, Be safe. And here we go. Matt Hundley, welcome to Hey Human. Thank you. I'm excited to be here. Yay. Tell me, how are you? First of all, I haven't seen you in forever. It's been a while. I feel like uh, I saw you in Nashville and then just sort of the apocalypse happened and you disappeared. Uh, But uh, you're still in L.A., right? (laughs) Yeah, I'm in L.A., yeah. Awesome. Uh, But I've I've been doing well out here. Um, We're basically on our third homestead here. I've been sort of fixing and flipping, but basically fixing and flipping gardens more than houses. Uh, but I'm about an hour outside of Nashville and staying as busy as I possibly can, which people like us always do. But uh, I'm doing good. Yeah. last I think the last time I saw you in person was dinner at your house. And you had just, you may have just purchased your first plot and there was like a trailer on it and stuff. And mm-hmm. yeah, but we'll get to that. But I think that was the last time I saw you in real life, which is crazy. Okay. That had to have been two years ago. Even before it's all a blur. I, even, I don't know what was happening last year, to be honest. I know it's all a blur. All right, let's go. Let's get dive into you. Where are you from originally? Originally, Oregon. 
um, about an hour outside of Portland, the real Oregon, I like to say, um, between Portland and the coast. So I grew up on the edge of a state forest where I could walk out of my parents' house and just walk into the woods, which is an awesome way to grow up to have a, a half a million acre backyard was, I was pretty spoiled. Absolutely. But I came to in 2015. But what? I came to Nashville then in 2015. Oh, so you were in Oregon for quite a long time. Yeah. Um, in between, I also bounced back and forth a little bit. Um, I was in the guard for a while, so I went. I lived for about a summer in. I lived in North Carolina, San Antonio, Texas, and then I also, when I was sixteen, I lived in Alaska. So I've managed to bounce around a little bit. Before you went to the guard and all that, what was your? Did you go to school? Were you working? What was your thing? Mm -hmm. Music's always been the overriding passion. Um, that's what I went to school for, and that's what I was doing from basically high school on, even really when I was a kid, I was out shoveling people's horse stalls in exchange for guitar lessons and um, pursuing that kind of on my own really the entire time. And then I went to college for it. Um, and of course, that's why I moved to Nashville. Uh, but the, the entire time, I also didn't realize it, but I was also kind of pursuing my homesteading dream. I was always working on farms. I was always doing that kind of rural stuff. Um, I just didn't know that that really qualified as a dream. Yeah. Did you plant and have a garden when you were a kid? Was that something that... A bit, yeah. Um, with my mom, she was really into ornamentals. And for me, I could never quite get on board with that because you can't eat a flower. So I just didn't see the value in it. Um, so it was kind of like cooking. I, I also discovered I liked that later. But when you're a kid and you're kind of forced to do things, you don't enjoy it as much. Um, but I was really into forestry and I, I managed our family's timber plot a lot. Um, so I was really kind of more into that side of things. And of course, all of the normal country things like fishing and, and hunting and all of that. Uh, but I did garden the whole time, uh, kind of accidentally. And then later on, discover, discovered that I really liked it. Timber plot. That sounds interesting. That mm -hmm. was a family tree farm then or? Uh, yeah, well, just pretty much everyone out there has their five or their 10 acres of forest, which is generally your heating source um, and your timber for building and, and everything like that. When I was 12 years old, I was cutting the trees down to make a chicken coop out of but it was really logging country that I grew up in. That was the main industry. And, you know, my grandpa and his grandpa and his grandpa before them, they were all either loggers or they were foresters working for the forestry department. So that was really just the industry out there. Either you were farming or you were working in the forest. Where did you get the passion for music? Which side of the family gave you that? B both sides were musical. Uh, some of my immediately immediate family played, some of them didn't. My si Two of my siblings did. So at first it was just kind of copying your older siblings. That's what we all do. And I actually kind of may or, may or may not have stole my violin, my fiddle from my sister. Every once in a while I get a text about that and I just tell her I haven't seen it. So if you're listening, Emily, I have not seen your, your fiddle. Definitely not. I definitely don't have it. But uh, I, I followed in their footsteps and I had a grandpa that played fiddle uh, on my mom's side and then my dad played piano. So it was kind of all around me. Was that your concentration in college was fiddle or was it guitar? Violin, yeah, violin performance. I ended up just doing one of the general studies associates because I got two or three years in and I realized I was already playing in bars at that point. And I realized nobody had ever asked me for my degree when I walked into a bar. So I decided it was kind of a little more money and time than I wanted to spend with that method of education. And, I, and, and I've really kind of been on this life journey of sort of rejecting um, uh, traditional education and finding my own ways to educate myself. What is the big difference between, this is a big question, a fiddle and a violin? A fiddle has beer spilled on it. <laughs> no, but to, to, that's my stock answer for every person at every bar because it's a very common question. But in reality, there's actually no difference in the instrument. The real difference is just in the styles. If you're playing country or bluegrass, it's going to be called a fiddle. If you're playing classical, it's going to be a violin. So the violin that I play is either a fiddle or a violin. There can be modifications made that some people would argue makes it more of a fiddle, but it's all pretty arbitrary. It's, it's really just whatever you decide to define it as. What drew you to that instrument beside your sister? I mean, was that, did you just love the way that sounded? Or, because mm -hmm. as, especially as a guy... Growing up yeah. in, you know, Pacific Northwest yeah. and all that. Yeah. yeah. It's a little weird to go from a chainsaw to a, to a fiddle. Um, but at the same time, I was playing guitar and piano. And I was too young to know it was a girl instrument, I think. And so I just kind of stuck with it after that. Uh, but I always liked the... Uh, the vocal sound of, an, of a violin. There's no frets or anything like that. So you have, it's harder, you have far more control, just like the human voice. And so I, I've just always loved that. And also I learned later on that basically fiddle players don't have to know a lot of parts. They just kind of get to improvise on most songs because there's about five songs that everyone knows that actually have fiddle on them. And being a pretty lazy person, I decided I would just put in the work up front, 
learned all the technical stuff on violin, which is difficult. And then I really, since then, I've just kind of done whatever I wanted. <laughs> I show up and I play for four hours and play whatever parts I want for the most part. You were touring extensively when before the Very. pandemic hit. Yeah, mm -hmm. I, was, I was playing six to seven days a week. Uh, I was playing Broadway a lot. I had, I had stopped doing road stuff as much and started playing Broadway a lot for the year before that happened. And at one point I was playing four shows back to back, four four hour shows back to back. So it was 16 hour days on Broadway no breaks you would no bathroom breaks like you run you run the tip jar use the bathroom while you're in the back run back on the stage run from one bar to another try to grab a pizza like while you're running it was brutal like 16 hour days in music people don't realize that exists no breaks osha really wasn't doing much for us at that point and when you say broadway you mean nashville's broadway yes yes yeah there what used to be bars music scene down there yeah your fingers must have hated you 16 hours of playing yes fingers in my voice and my soul <laughs> they all hated me oh because you sing too that's right so you would mm -hmm. sing and play fiddle mm -hmm. yeah yeah that's awesome let's get into the homesteading when did that bug really hit i mean obviously you grew up in a plant and harvest family clearly but mm -hmm. that, that's a far cry people that grow up in that stuff to actually starting to go wait a minute i can make land that is nourishing me instead of bearing it, it took me a long time to come back to it i i was always passionate about it. i dream like i loved working on my parents property but for me i couldn't do what i wanted and and their vision was not my vision so that was really stymieing for me and then also on the west coast in oregon the ability to buy land if you're on a musician's salary it's, it's just so impossible and the ability to make a farm out of it because I'll, I'll try to avoid some politics here but the regulation is so draconian i had a neighbor who had a farm that got shut down because they had a shed on their land that uh they didn't pay thousands and thousands of bribes to the government for and so their farm was shut down and so like your ability even if you can afford land which is crazy expensive you just can't farm you just can't homestead unless you have a ton of money so it's it's very re regressive in those progressive states when it comes to homesteading so i'd really kind of given up on that when i came to nashville and then even i always had it in the back of my mind i knew i wanted someday to have that farm and that piece of land but i always imagined my route would be finding fame and fortune in music and then i could go buy my farm and kind of you know retire and tour whenever i wanted and of course life doesn't really turn out the way we think and i as you mentioned when when uh when we had dinner that one time, I had just bought that property. I was sitting there looking at what I call property porn, going through the real estate sites, ogling all the farms I couldn't afford in the country. And I stumbled across this single wide trailer that was too horrifying to describe. Uh, it was piles and piles, it was a foreclosure, piles of trash, it's on 1.2 acres. The whole house was just gutted. There was holes, there was garbage inside and out. Later, as I cleaned it up, I found everything from syringes to human feces. It was as bad as you can imagine. There was a dump on it. People for decades were just, that was the drive to the end of the road and dump trash. It was the most horrifying property you can imagine, but a musician could afford it. And so I, I said, I don't care. I'm going to buy it. But I also did, I could see the property underneath it and I could see, I, I had, I could see the dream underneath it. Um, it was a good South facing slope. It had a beautiful forest around it, it had a seasonal stream at the bottom at the bottom of this holler that was just peaceful and quiet and there was wildlife everywhere so i jumped in and i bought it and i still was living the city and doing music really intensively so and that's about when when i think we had talked about it and i i didn't think i could live out there because it was an hour outside of nashville i was in nashville all the time it just i had bought it kind of on a whim and on some faith but not knowing what my plan was and me being very stupid i tried to rent it out to some folks and the, the deal was they would fix it up in exchange for a few months free rent and then then pay which of course was really not wise and they turned out to be drug addicts and just a mess and so i got to experience my first um eviction that was a lot of fun to go through and go to court and evict somebody and and that also bankrupted me i was completely just an extreme version of house poor and so at that point this was coming up on two years ago at that point I had no choice but to move out there and so i was like well i'm in trouble i'm going to move out here and just live in this dump and it was a dump and no cash i moved out there started growing food from day one because i was so broke i couldn't afford food but i could afford a packet of seeds at dollar tree so i started growing food i didn't have water running water so i would go down to that seasonal stream to do my laundry i would haul water up in buckets i couldn't afford compost or anything to remedy the soil which was 
full of trash that I was still cleaning up. I cleaned up all the trash above the garden first, just cleared a path in the trash to plant food in. Um, I got the food planted. And from there, just my life started to change. Um, my finances turned around because immediately, even though I was living in a dump, I didn't have rent. I didn't have a water bill. I had very few energy bills. I didn't have a food bill anymore. And so my, my, even though I was living on a very small musician salary, I started to build wealth for the first time. I paid off my debt. I started to actually save money and I started fixing up the property. There was an old house that had crumbled down. I actually hauled that out piece by piece in a minivan. <laughs> and I just, for a year, I just ground away at this property and pretty much lived in squalor. Um, but also not squalor because I, I came out of the city, you saw where we lived and I had roommates and never had privacy. I couldn't play music very loud. I couldn't play it late. Out here, I had total freedom. I could do whatever I wanted. I could live the way I wanted. I could make noise and I had space and I could improve something ugly, turn it into something beautiful. And then I knew like, I'm never going back. I'm never going back to the city. I'm never not growing my own food. And since then I've been on a journey to basically grow more food, learn how to grow more food, learn more about homesteading, learn how to remedy land, learn how to be more sustainable and to, to produce less waste and just to be more free and get more acres. That's been my main financial goal, get more acres. How long did it take for the food to be sustenance that you planted? Because obviously that, that takes a bit of season. Mm -hmm. From the day I moved in, I was eating my own food in about two months. Uh, That's first, rapid. Like, yeah, radishes and greens. I was working pretty intensively on it. Um, radishes and greens were the first early spring crops. And then my tomatoes were booming. Um, my first year, I sold my first carton of tomatoes, which I was very proud of. I had $2. I think I, I think I have one of the dollars like saved somewhere. It was like my first farm dollar. Um, that I'd made from my own land. And every year since then, it's just exponentially grown. I've improved the soil wherever I've been at, and I've learned so much more. The biggest thing, if anybody is ever going to get into gardening, which everybody should, the biggest thing is, is you, I'm sure, found out is that you just learn and you make mistakes. And I, I hope when I'm 90 years old and I'm a master at everything, that I'll still be making mistakes because that's the climate is, is always changing. It's never static and the conditions are always changing. Your soil is always changing. And if you're a gardener, you know what it is when you get that Baker's Creek catalog, you see that crazy colored pumpkin and you order it. And so you're always trying new things. And so it's like failure is money, mistakes are money. And, and that's one thing I think people get, first time gardeners get overwhelmed with the information saying, do things this way, do things that way. There's no one way to do things. What works in Tennessee doesn't work in LA. Yeah, I grew when I moved out here. I've grown now uh, from a baby tangerine tree. I've and the tangerines mm. are they're they're like nothing you've ever tasted. They're, oh, when they're fresh, mm. it's like eating candy. And then I grew potatoes, which I didn't need salt or butter. I just ate them by themselves, and they were sweet and savory. Mm. Oh my god, I was so excited. <laughs> that, that taste is like that's because they're full of nutrition. Like yeah. your body is saying you need to eat more of this because it led. And so that's kind of a scary comment on what our food from the supermarket is it's yeah. not good there's a reason one in four people have cancer we're we're not getting the nutrition from our food the tomatoes when you pick them up they should smell like dirt when they smell yeah. sort of plasticky you should not eat it <laughs> no and you can tell by the color of things but they're just pale and it seems like they're getting worse day by day mm. and yeah it's not good but it is very good to grow your own food and you know this you, you found that too yeah. I remember being placed in Nashville was just surround indoors was like being outdoors, like here, just surrounded by plants. Yeah. I'm a big fan of the plants for sure. And had I stayed on that property, I tried to get, I wanted to get a communal garden going on that side, you know, that side deck I had the out thing that was fenced. I was like, Oh, this is perfect. Perfect. And we talked about it. I think yeah, but we did just, talk about it at that time. Yeah, mm -hmm. We just couldn't coordinate getting the people to together to do it. It's, it would have been a big task for me to do all of it. Why don't you explain to people who may not know, what is homesteading? Because we've now said that word a few times and some people are yeah. like, what do you mean? Like little house on the prairie hats? What is that? <laughs> yeah, and, and like any word, it's it. the definition depends on the person. Of course, homesteading could be seen as the homesteading act back in the day when the government gave you 160 acres for like a nickel and you went out and you just had to like fight for it. <laughs> yeah. uh, I think I would define it today as moving on to a piece of land and using it to become more self-sufficient. That would be the de best de definition I can think of. For me, it's producing as much of my own food as I can. It's producing a lifestyle that I like. 
and it's producing my own energy. It's producing as many of my needs as I possibly can from that, whatever piece of land that I'm on. That's, that's what homesteading is to me. How do you uh, provide the energy? Is it harnessing water or is it? I mean, if you really think about like what energy really is, heart, water is energy. Um, for example, I'm, so I'm really into permaculture now and I've been studying that. And one thing they teach is stop, stop water at the highest point in your property that you can. So if you live on a hillside, which every property has some kind of slope, you stop, you catch the water at the highest point you possibly can because that's energy. You, if, let's say it's 30 feet above the lowest part of your property. If you catch enough water that high, that's not only water that you can use in a garden, which is energy or for drinking, but you could also use that to generate electricity. And the more drop you have, the more gravity you have, and the more velocity you have, the more energy you can create. So it's literally energy in terms of electricity, but it's also energy in that you can put it in the ground and turn it into more food. Um, things like the sun, obviously, is energy. We know about solar panels, but also a greenhouse is energy. And you could use that to heat your home passively. You could, in a cold climate, you could throw a greenhouse on the south side of your home and capture a massive amount of heat. So you're capturing energy really passively that way. Uh, putting a pipe deep underground and running into your house is taking underground temperatures and bringing them to your house. That's harnessing energy. Catching wind is energy in the form of windmill. Um, but putting a plant in the ground is also using a solar power. You're taking free limitless energy and turning it into food. Um, so there's really a lot of ways beyond the normal way we think of energy to catch energy and store it. And that's one of, like, uh, that's a principle of permacultures. You catch energy and then you store it for as long as you can. How would you do that then with your, with your water source that you had on that first property or had you not harnessed it yet? on that part because you've you've since do you, did you sell that one and move to a bigger property or what where, where? Yeah, so I'll, I'll go ahead and give you the full gamut yeah of that. <laughs> okay complicated journey um that was my first property and then i was there for roughly a year a little bit more than a year and the property next to me came up for sale and i met the guy who owned it and he he offered me owner financing on it which was a great deal and it's like that's actually where i'm at right now and it was it's a little a-frame cabin on just less than an acre so I went ahead and bought that. Um, my girlfriend, Gabby, actually moved in right away because she wanted to get out of Nashville. And she had just purchased five acres about half a mile down the road. So that's the next step in this tale. And so she lived in there while I was living in the trailer. But then I listed that for sale. I sold that to some wonderful folks who are continuing the homestead journey on the property and continuing to clean it up and just do amazing things. And he's a carpenter. So that family is really doing the part that I didn't get done, which was the fixing of the house. I fixed on the outside and the cleaning up. He's fixing the actual interior and exterior of the building. So then I moved in to the A-frame cabin that we're now in. And we're currently building a house on the five acre site, a half mile down the road, which uh, is our new homestead. And we're about midway through that. We've got the foundation done. We, we just got the walls up yesterday. So we're like literally midway through this. And so that's currently where we're at. And basically our goal is one more property. We want to get to the final property next, which is at least 10 acres. And there's a whole list of criteria um, to kind of have this perfect homestead, you know, running water on the property and enough room for grazing, basically enough to feed a family off of and more enough to sell the extra surplus. Is the plan to have all of these properties connect in a, in a manner or is the ultimate gold property could be anywhere? Um, pretty much we're selling them to fund the next one as we go. Um, I actually just put this one up for sale just today. So I guess if anybody listening wants to buy an A-frame at a, at a good price, hit me up. Um, but we'll move on to the five acre one. Um, that one's subdividable. So we, we may end up, um, splitting that up and creating another homestead. Part of what I'm doing now is homestead design. So I'm, this is really great because I'm getting to practice everything I've been learning in my permaculture courses. I get to design these properties out to be as self-sufficient as possible. And the folks that bought the, the previous property, that was a major factor for them. That was the reason they bought it was that it had a garden and it, it had all the self-sufficiency already built in. And so for, I'm kind of experimenting with what I think is a new business plan, which is permaculture fix and flip. It's I'm getting a degraded property and I'm not even dealing with the house. I'm just fixing the land and designing the land and improving it and making it as self-sufficient as possible and putting it on the pathway to self-sufficiency. And right now in the times we're in, a lot of people are valuing that more than ever. 
Um, Because not only are we in crisis, you know, economically and socially, but we're also in crisis environmentally. And so we're seeing a lot of this, I would venture to say, is because of our destruction of the environment, because we've degraded topsoil and we've really used up phosphate and easy easy fossil fuels, collapse is inevitable. And I'll put my tinfoil hat on and say the folks that are higher up in society see that collapse coming. So they're just trying to arrange and hasten things and, yeah. and they're trying to control collapse. Like we all are, we're all trying to control collapse in our own lives and our right. own sphere of influence. When I, wa- I saw um, a New York Times report that about buying up water rights, I thought, oh, that's never a good sign. Yes, water is finally a commodity. Actually, they finally admitted that water is that's a commodity. Exactly, yeah. That's not a Clean good sign. Water is worth more than oil. Oh, absolutely. Absolutely. Yeah. Um, and to the point of that we were making about the grocery stores is, I mean... Firstly, that's a whole waste mechanism that is insane to me. The fact that people are hungry and yet they throw away tons of perfectly yeah. edible food. It may not be the quality that you're growing, but it's still certainly edible. Still food. Um, take me through this ultimate farm first, let's say. How would you divide it up and how would you plan it? When you see the land for the first time, does it appear to you the way, say, an architect sees a, a possibility for a building? Mm-hmm. Yeah, there's a lot of criteria. This so in this permaculture course I've taken, it's it's really handy because it it lays all these principles out. And so when you look at a property, you kind of analyze: can I achieve my goals within this framework? You know, for example, I'm not going to go on land. I'm not going to use fertilizers. I'm not going to use pesticides. Um, I'm not going to use tap water, you know, which is full of chlorine and fluoride and all these chemicals. Um, and I, and I'm not going to use a tractor even for my goals. Like I, I'm no fossil fuels is, and no inputs is the goal for my property. And so when I look at a property, I have to say, can I feed a family and have enough to sell and make fiat currency enough to live off of? Can I do that without using electricity, without using water that's imported from an unknown source, essentially, which city water is. Um, so that really kind of sets my criteria pretty well. Fortunately, Tennessee is just an abundant place to just, Although we have rocky clay soil, it's still good soil, and we have so much water here, just just a wonderful amount of soil. And for me, I base, I, and I'm also a musician, so I'm inherently lazy, so I want to build a very passive system that's minimizing labor. So I don't always want to be growing lots of annuals like tomatoes and lettuce. I'll always grow those things, but I, I want the bulk of mine to be more passive than that. Um, just like if, if you're an investor, you want your income to be passive, I want my food to be passive. So food forests and fruit and nut trees and low maintenance grazing animals like sheep and things like that and really well-designed systems are very hands-off. You really just step back and when you put in the investment into the infrastructure, you step back and you obtain the yield after that. Um, So for me, I've kind of figured that 10 acres is kind of the minimum to to produce that in this climate and in this state. Uh, Of course, that would be very different in Arizona or in Louisiana. Now, there's people who are very self-sufficient on a quarter acre. So it really just, it just depends on what your goals are and the climate you're in. Uh, but for me, I want, I want multiple sources of water and I would include rainwater catchment, which anybody can do. That's a source. Um, city water is a source. It's a fallback because I have a bit of a prepper mentality too. Um, but a well is one, a creek is one, a spring. So I want as much water as I can get. Uh, I want forest. Part of that is just an aesthetic thing. I love being in the woods um, and I want to be able to hunt and have that extra source of protein because to me, there's no protein that compares to venison. You know, they're out grazing the best of all the food and spending their whole lives just packing themselves with nutrition for you. <laughs> Room enough to graze and have my garden and to build a home on. Um, and there's there's specific aesthetic things alike. And, you know, who's the neighbor? Um, what's the access? What's the road access? Where is it located? Uh, is there any pollution nearby? What are the local people like? All of these things come into play. Um, and so there's just this mental checklist I'm going through every time I'm looking at land. And I assume too, you would take that food and, and pickle and do all that kind of thing as well. That's all part of it to have. Yeah, preservation. That's, that's the big step really is growing is one thing, but that's really not going to help you out this time of year. Here we are in January. There's not much growing. And so preservation and season extension are, are the two ways. I remember you had a bit of a greenhouse. You had a really nice wall of windows and you were able to grow year round in that. 
Um, and that's so if you're able to build your own house, you can really design that in. You can design a nice south facing wall of windows or a, an external greenhouse or internal one. So season preservation or season extension allows you to not have to preserve so much because I try to minimize processing. You know, if I have to can food, that's energy I have to use and that's time I have to use. Now I can, I want to can, canning is good. Um, but I'll, I'm also depending on jars and I have to buy new rings and lids for that. So I want to minimize that. Um, so there's a lot of things you can grow, such as turnips, uh, which you can actually leave in the ground all winter long. Uh, just last month, I was harvesting turnips still. Carrots are the same way. You can leave them in the ground, harvest them. There's things like potatoes and onions, which you can leave in a root cellar year round with no no preservation. Uh, a summer or uh, um, some kinds of squash you can just set on a counter and it'll stay good for months and months. And I have right now I have one one cherry tomato. We grew one in the window, and that's the only one that made it so far. So we have a cherry tomato that Gabby and I are basically fighting over who gets to eat it because it's our only had <laughs> this winter. But and then preservation would be canning. You can make jerky out of meat. Smoking things. Um, there's ways of making cheese. Fermentation, of course. Um, you know that's really where most of our food actually came from. Preservation. We we invented cheese because the cows stopped producing in the winter. So I was like. Somebody left a bunch of it out and it got bad, but not bad. Yeah. <laughs> so, and, and of course, like you said, pickles and sauerkraut um, and really wines and liquors too. You know, wine was a way to get some kind of fruit content in the dead of winter. Yeah. Keep that scurvy away. Mm -hmm. <laughs> a friend of mine, Lori, she has uh, a farm in Tennessee that she doesn't, as you said, she takes the quote unquote lazy approach. And usually bugs eat me alive, right? Especially in Tennessee, that was a huge problem. But I went out to her farm and we were walking around and, and touring her property. And she was on at least, it was at least a hundred acres. I can't remember the number now, but, and I was marveling at the fact that I had not been bitten all day. Mm -hmm. And I said to her, I said, what is, go what is this magical brigadoon that I am traveling around in? How come the bugs are eating me? She said, oh, because everything i don't spray i don't do anything all the animals are all the you know the possum eat this and you know da, 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 and like and there's bats and there's this and like, and all the animals are working in tandem with each other and keeping everything into its own little ecosystem i really marveled yeah. at that it's it's amazing that's that's what a permaculture design will do is you're you're bringing diversity in you want as much stuff as you can get and for me, it's so freeing to not worry about the bugs eating the tomato because, you know, those bugs can have that tomato. I've got tomatoes all over the place and some of them will make it, some of them won't. Seeds are cheap. They're free if you're saving your own. And so a well-balanced system is not going to have an abundance of mosquitoes. There's going to be predators eating them. And you can design for those things. You can plant specific plants that attract the predator insects and you can make housing for martens and bats. Uh, I know the Mennonites and Amish out here, they have, they make birdhouse gourds. And they make little birdhouses for the martins. And if you drive by their homesteads, they have them on a string. They'll have hundreds of them hanging over their gardens. And it's it's just a, a passive management thing to say, I don't want to spray mosquito spray all over my place. And there's so many plants that will do that. There's plants that repel insects. There's plants that attract them. And really, the more diversity you bring in, the more balanced your system gets. And the more hands-off it gets when it comes to pest management. Yeah, I don't think people realize how much we are imbibing pesticides. When I was in Nashville, I got pesticide poisoning. And let me tell you, the process of removing that from your body, that was one of the most painful things I've ever experienced in my life. And I said to the, to the doctor, I was like, how the hell did I get po pesticide poisoning? So like I have a farm or anything like that. And she said, well, let's see, Tennessee, Nashville, everybody sprays their lawn, everybody sprays their trees. It's on your food that you're probably not washing good enough and you know and and it was crazy the crazy is the word how insane is it that we put poison on our food and then we put it in our bodies it's crazy like, if, if a society does that then you better be a prepper because we're already you're probably familiar with the term shtf you know something hits the van which oh, i'll say yeah you can, you can swear it already has when everybody <laughs> so sick and it's like, yeah, we're living long lives. We're not living good lives. We're so sickly. We're having to cram pharmaceuticals down our throats and we're depressed and anxiety ridden. Depression and anxiety, we, uh, this is probably controversial, but I don't think they're natural things that just happen. It's because of bad things in our bodies and bad things in our brains and living in a bad way. Like none of that is good. 
And so you can't fix society if you're a person. You can try. Go ahead and bang your head against the wall. You, you can see how well that works in the political sphere. You know, try to change the world that way. Or you can just say, I'm not taking part in it anymore. If I can't afford good organic food, I'm just going to grow it. And I'm going to find a way to leave. And I know a lot of people say, but not everybody can do that. I would disagree. You know me. I'm a musician. I was making maybe $300 a week. I made it happen. And it was, it's really hard, but I made it happen. And uh, you, can make, you can grow food if you're homeless in a car. If you can stick something in a cup holder, you're driving a greenhouse. You can borrow. There's people I was listening to about this guy in Memphis who goes around to older ladies who are like old gardeners that can't get out anymore. And he goes and offers to help them garden in exchange for being able to take some of the yield. So he's helping somebody and he's able to start gardening in their yards. There's community gardens. There's so much land everywhere, so many yards everywhere, so many people that would be willing to trade. There's guerrilla gardening, which is really fun, where you sneak into a public space and plant stuff. That's, yeah. that's a, you feel like you're breaking the law, but you're really like you're planting a, a nut tree. It's, it's not, you're not exactly going to go to prison for that. Anybody can and should be growing food and getting, getting their bodies and their minds out of that poisonous system. There's a couple of things to that. I mean, we are an ecosystem and I don't, I think people forget mm -hmm. that and mm -hmm. what, what's in our gut and what we eat and what we drink. It's all part of feeding our brain. It's a closed system sort of, cause we, mm -hmm. you know, we have to poop and pee and all that stuff. But, um, and, and, and we obviously take food in, but what's going on in our guts and things like that. It's, it's important. I, I, we had the repair man here today. The refrigerator is being wonky and, um, I said, I have a question for you. I said, I bet you see a lot of refrigerators. You said, yeah, I see a lot of refrigerators. I said, do you get to know people by what they're eating, by what you see in the refrigerator? He said, well, I'll tell you this much. He said, the people that have a lot of crap in their refrigerator are angry. They're just angry people. Yeah. I think it does affect one. Surprise, year. surprise. Your brain is part of your body. <laughs> the food you eat affects yeah. your brain. Yeah. Shoving poison into their brain, and then they sit there and wonder, why am I depressed? Why yeah. do I need alcohol all the time? Why do I need drugs all the time? What, like, well, you know, make a change. Like, nobody's going to make it for you. You bring up a good point, too, about, like, if I grew, again, the tangerine tree and the, and the potatoes, it's not like I knew a whole lot about gardening. You just sort of have to go for it. And it's easier than it looks. <laughs> what yeah. it wants is it wants sun unless it wants shade, and it wants water. That's Our plant literally designed to grow stuff. <laughs> just, you just work with nature, pay attention to what it's doing, yeah. mimic it. And then also you just go for, it's a numbers game. For me, I just plant as much stuff as I can. And I'm, I don't study on a lot of the stuff. So, you know, maybe half of it will fail. That's fine. Half of it will, will succeed. And that's what I'm going to cook with that year. And it'll propagate itself as well. And I mean, mm -hmm. look at how, how green comes up, excuse me, through concrete. Right, the green comes up to the concrete is proof that you can grow a thing. No oh, if we were all, if, if all the humans died tomorrow, not that it would be a good thing. I'm not one of those people who thinks that would be. But if that happened, we all we all disappear. No, I disagree. But <laughs> we all disappear. Come back in a few thousand years. Are you going to find a city or any concrete? You know who's so nature is like. You have to actively fight against it to make it not work, and that's exactly what we do. That's how we do agriculture. That's how we do everything. We fight against nature. We have a transhumanist, transnatural attitude where we think we're smarter than nature and we're really not because we're a part of nature. So we're clearly not smarter than it. But you bring up the Amish that live nearby. And I was thinking as you were talking about the homesteading, I was like, well, the Amish have figured out how to do things pretty well. Do you, do you go and study? Are you? I do. I actually, I, to me, like I study them intensively, um, trying to get to know them more because um, they're wonderful people, first of all, but they've really figured out that the system is not good for them and they've withdrawn. And if you look at their communities, so one thing I learned about them is they, all the stuff you think of the Amish not using electricity and a lot of technology, that's nothing to do with their religion. Their, their, their religion doesn't say God hates electricity. They do it because they believe technology breaks up their communities and they're very right. When you live in the city, you know, you have no sense of community. You, you seek it, you try to find it. And if you watch TV and entertainment, what do you see? Every show is about a group of people. It's always about this tight knit community that we all just sit and watch and, and envy. And they've not allowed their communities to be destroyed. Every day they're together, they, they help each other through hard times. You know, they're not perfect. They don't live in utopia. They get sick. They have troubles. They have financial troubles. But they're always there to help each other through. And when they raise a barn, the whole community shows up. So they've figured out so many things. And they've figured it out for hundreds of years. And all they really did was 
step back from the system and say, I'm not engaging that anymore. And to some degree, you know, maybe not to that extremity, but to some degree, we all need to choose at some point to say what a lot of society is built around is not good or healthy. And I'm going to choose to withdraw from this part and this part and this part. You know, here I am, I'm on the internet. I still have that thing, but we know that's, that's dangerous. You know, who, who owns Zoom? Who's monitoring everything? You know, you know what it's like when you say something, you see the ad later. So maybe the time will come when I choose not to have the internet anymore, but I haven't chosen that yet. So you can choose, pick and choose strategically what you're going to withdraw from, but we have to withdraw from some of it. Then they've done that and they've become very successful and their, their health is very good as a result. And their, their minds are good as a result. They're pretty happy people. I mean, no, again, nobody's perfect. And they make um, a hell of a good pie. <laughs> mm-hmm. Yep. They do. I've had them, man. Those, we live about probably a 30 minute drive or so from one Amish community and any chance I get there, I just, anything they make, I, I get. Yeah. They definitely have the cooking down and the sewing and the building of the furniture. Really they they've figured out how to be self-sufficient for sure. Do you find a community of other homesteaders easily or is that tougher still as it's slowly taking off? A little bit of both. Um, it's really fun to be alive right now because this is, this is like a, a big back to the movement, back to the land movement, kind of like what happened in the 60s and 70s, but way more extreme. Um, I think we're going to look back in history and see a massive demographic shift back to rural areas. Um, I talked to a rural real estate agent out here and he said his inquiries have doubled. Um, and I've seen it in the price values of, of properties and certainly only property out here has been good because I've been able to make a profit off of each transaction because people are flooding into the country. Um, and so it's, that really helps there to be a homestead movement because everybody's like, oh shoot, how do we do this? We have no, like all the, ge- all the generational knowledge we should have had passed down, we ignored, you know, we threw that out around the great depression era and we just became so dependent on the system and so dependent on government that we forgot how to be self-sufficient and, probably our great grandparents were trying to pass it down and we ignored them and, and we belittled their knowledge as, as worthless. And we also have this image of the farm as a struggling, painful experience. So, you know, we've rejected that too. And so we're just rediscovering how incredible it is and, and the necessity of it. And so, yeah, there, there's a, it's not that hard to network yourself into it. There's social media groups all over the place um, by region and also kind of by style of homesteading. And then I've actively gone out and tried to build build homestead around me. One of the coolest things that's happened is here on this rural subdivision that I'm in, each lot is about an acre or so. Uh, I've given out seedlings to my neighbors and then they've started to garden and they've given me seedlings last, last year um, or this earlier this spring, we had a pack of wild dogs and coyotes come through and kill all of our chickens and rabbits. It was just devastating. And our neighbor came over with a stack of beef from his farm and, and just loaded our freezer with that. And when their cucumbers did good and ours, ours failed, we traded, they brought us some of those. We gave them radishes and swapped back and forth. And so community starts to build around you. And that's one thing I would say to like kind of my kind of people who are like the sort of prepper mentality is you've got it wrong if you're trying to be the lone wolf. Like there's no such thing as self-sufficiency unless you're really living in Alaska with a, even if you have a gun, what do you like, what are you gonna do when you run out of bullets? You're gonna go like try to find some bat poop and make your own, like nobody's self-sufficient. It requires community to survive but it's also so rewarding and so enriching to be in a community of like-minded people who want to go back to nature, who want to become more self-sufficient, who want to bless the land around them and make nature healthier and clean up the degraded topsoil and clean up the waterways and all of that. Like it's, so if you are active in it, the the community just builds itself around you. I think that we are, I'd like to think that we are heading toward a more, uh, tribal community system i think that people are starting to realize wake up out of that fog of of like you said Mm -hmm. oh i'm on my own and see the benefit of community um of course it's hard to do during a pandemic but we've still seen signs of it during the pandemic and uh it just it seems to me that the fear that people have i think is it sounds overwhelming it sounds overwhelming to think oh my god how am i gonna where do I start? But the, the fact that you're saying just just start, you know, start with a tomato yeah. plant or a... If I was going to give advice, I would say no matter where you are, the second this podcast is over and you're done listening or during it, go order seeds. Um, and also that's pretty pragmatic because like Baker's Creek is a huge retailer and Baker's Creek actually went offline. They can't meet demand and 
all the seeds, like all the common seeds are getting bought up. So before you even think about anything else, just order seeds, order anything that looks like it'll work in your climate. But anybody can start. It doesn't matter if you're in an apartment and all you have is a balcony or a window. If you, if you have a window that doesn't open, you can start microgreens on your windowsill. If you're in a car and you're homeless, you can, I've actually started seedlings in my cup holders in my car because I didn't have a greenhouse. You could start growing in a car. You can gorilla plant. You can find that community garden. So and you, you can start anywhere. And the biggest part of gardening is the learning curve. And so if you just start wherever you're at, you'll get ahead of that learning curve. I wish I'd started some potted plants when I was in Nashville. I would be years ahead, even though I was living in an apartment. If I just started then, I would have already learned so much and I wouldn't have had to make those mistakes later on. So just start making mistakes. That's the best thing you can do. Yeah, it's magical here in Los Angeles is when I go on walks, the fact that I pass by food constantly, lemon trees, orange trees, tangerine trees, uh, loquats. Um, lo mm, yeah, right. Lo I wish we could grow loquats. Oh, they're so good. And all this great food, uh, mm. pomegranates. I have a pomegranate tree in my yard. So um, cool. Yeah, apples. There's, and it's wonderful. I, and I look forward to the day when that's just everywhere. Every street side, every sidewalk, every home is like, I would like to never see grass again. <laughs> just see abundance of food. Like you were talking about earlier, like why are there starving people when there's so much food in the grocery? But also why are there hungry people that have yards? That's crazy. They, there are so many people who are either hungry or they're eating really substandard food. And I really see that out here because this county is a rural food desert and obese. Some people are like both food insecure and obese at the same time because they're just eating garbage if they're eating at all. But like, I forget the percentage, but it's massive for um, children who are food insecure in this county. And there's yards everywhere. Everybody out here has like one to five acres of lawn and they're working. They go out there with a, a $1,800 lawn tractor fill it full of fossil fuels and go cut their useless grass shorter constantly. But what? why, why are yeah. we not surrounded by food? If you're going to put in labor, why don't you want to eat amazing? Like I was at somebody's farm the other day, I was playing a show and I stayed at their farm and he showed me this black walnut tree that his dad had gone out as an eight year old and stuck in the ground and his family laughed at him and he stuck this walnut in the ground. Now there's this massive walnut outside of the house that defines the house and the ground is covered in food. Because one little eight-year-old kid just stuck a nut in the ground. That's all it took. Yeah, and plants really want to survive. They have a, they really do mm -hmm. under the right circumstance. And of course, there are people who say, oh my gosh, I don't have a green thumb at all. I kill everything. What do you say to those folks? You're wrong. You're wrong. <laughs> you, don't, you, you kill everything because that's what you're supposed to do when you start gardening. You, that's like, that's, I'm a musician too. So that would be like, a, I firmly believe that anybody can learn music. And I, I can prove that because I've never taught anybody that couldn't learn. I've taught kids who were pretty tone deaf to begin with, or who just didn't have any interest and just thought they were no good at, or, or we, you know, we're coming from a rough place and every single one of them can play you a song now. So, and just like anybody can learn music, anybody can learn to grow food, just like anybody can cook. Anybody can do these things. If you just have to apply yourself, but also be willing. We, we've, we become a culture that is terrified of mistakes. We're such perfectionists. We're, we think that we have to be scientific about everything. Whereas I think gardening is, is a little bit of science, but way more art because literally my climate in this yard is totally different than what's half a mile away. There's a drastic change just a half mile away. If you're reading a gardening book or watching a YouTube video, that person may have some useful advice, but it's the same things will not apply. The things that work for them won't work for you. Their soil's not the same, their plants aren't the same, their sun, their water, it's just too variable. So it's an art and art means you just make mistakes and you just throw stuff at the wall and you see what works. Mm -hmm. So there is no such thing as a black thumb. <laughs> Matt, how can people get a hold of you if they want to ask you maybe about their land or even their front yard or, you know, then they have questions. What's the best way to find you? The best way would be my new website. Just finished it. It's mostly finished, but it's finished enough. And that's TennesseeHomesteadDesign.com. There's a contact form and an email and all that on it. And it describes what I do. Um, right now, I'm kind of shifting in this mode of designing homesteads because so many people are buying land and they don't even know where to start. They don't even know what to do. And I was blessed with that childhood growing up on all these small farms in Oregon. And then I've been studying just intensively for the last few years on permaculture and, and uh, other natural farming techniques. And so that's my mission right now is to just help people get growing. So TennesseeHomesteadDesign.com.
would you be able to travel to someone's land and, and give them advice? Or is it something where you'd have to hunker down for a little while to really help them? I, um, I potentially could. Um, yeah. And there's also, I obviously you can't do it as well from Google Maps and pictures, but to some degree I can do that as well. Um, so I can do some things remotely. Uh, if nothing else, even if like they have no budget, because like, I'm doing that professionally now, even if they had no budget, if they send me a message, I'll at least steer them to the right learning resources where anybody could absorb that information and start. Um, yeah. So whether they have a budget or not, just reach out and, and, and we'll, we'll figure out a way to get you growing food. Great. And you said to, to what's the best place for seeds? Obviously not the place that is closed down right now, but. Best place is first of all, what, you know, what's around you um, get connected with it. Everywhere has little old ladies in gardening clubs and some of them like they're masters that have been gardening for decades and decades and they have so many heirlooms that need preserved. So first of all, start connecting with those around you um, and then also visit whatever local feed stores around. We have a great one out here where it's this uh, guy that like he's sourced it for his whole life for decades and decades where he'd, he'll drive up to Kentucky to get specific seeds from one farmer. And so all of his are sourced independently. Um, of course, you can just go to the big box store, Lowe's, Walmart, any of those, those, uh, it's kind of a myth that they're all GMO seeds. They're not. Um, you actually, it's very difficult to even find GMO seeds. Now, hybrids, you don't really want to deal with because they're not going to reproduce accurately. Uh, you really do want to get heirloom, but most seeds you get are going to reproduce pretty accurately. And if they don't, you know, you got seeds that year, try some new ones next time. But uh, so you can get the, all the big box store seeds and then you can just Google seeds. I've had great luck with just uh, random stuff off of Etsy and eBay. Um, you know, sometimes you get a bad batch or something you don't know, but you know, there's reviews. Um, Baker's Creek, I think they might be back online. Uh, Trade Winds Fruit has a lot of good ones. Um, I'm blanking on a few, but if you just start Googling seeds for sale, heirloom seeds for sale, all the big retailers will come up and most of them will say what they have and what they're out of. Yeah. Matt, I adore you. I appreciate that you talked about this. It's really exciting to see you venture into this whole new realm. Mm -hmm. awesome. Exciting for me. It's an exciting time to be alive when you start doing this. If, if you're journeying towards self-sufficiency and sustainability, all this crisis and all this horror around us, you, you're, you're chasing the positive side. You know, like the more the world crashes, the better my farm will do. So imagine being able to have that mindset where the worse things get, the better your life will get. Everybody needs to do this. And I, I can just say from my life, I lost 100% of my income overnight. I lost everything when they shut down the bars, when they did the lockdowns and, you know, sent cops with guns to shut down people's businesses. I lost everything. And this has been the best year of my life. So I just can only encourage people to do it. They will not regret it. That's awesome. Thank you for being on the show, Matt. Thank you. I love your podcast. Yay. <laughs> I'll come down to LA one of these days. Oh, please do. You're always welcome. And I'm, I've yet to meet your lovely woman. So definitely. Yeah, I'll bring her along too. Yeah. And the dog. Why not? And bring everybody. <laughs> All right. We'll bring the whole gang. Thanks for listening, everybody. Bye. See ya. Rate and review Hey Human on iTunes or wherever you get your podcasts. Thanks. Bye.